Part two, chapter fifteen of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, chapter fifteen. The Last Exploring Expedition. From this date, February third, the sun rose each day higher above the horizon. The nights were, however, still very long, and, as is often the case in February, the cold increased, the thermometer marking only one degree Fahrenheit, the lowest temperature experienced throughout this extraordinary winter. "'When does the thaw commence in these northern seas?' inquired Mrs. Barnett of the lieutenant. "'In ordinary seasons,' replied Hobson, "'the ice does not break up until early in May.' but the winter has been so mild that unless a very hard frost should now set in, the thaw may commence at the beginning of April. At least that is my opinion. We shall still have two months to wait, then? Yes, two months, for it would not be prudent to launch our boat too soon amongst the floating ice. I think our best plan will be to wait until our island has reached the narrowest part of Bering Strait, which is not more than two hundred miles wide." "'What do you mean?' exclaimed Mrs. Barnett, considerably surprised at the lieutenant's reply. "'Have you forgotten that it was the Kamchatka current which brought us where we are now, and which may seize us again when the saw sets in, and carry us yet further north?' "'I do not think it will, madam. Indeed, I feel quite sure that it will not happen. The thaw always takes place in from north to south, and although the Kamchatka current runs the other way, the ice will go down the bearing current.' Other reasons there are, for my opinion, which I cannot now enumerate. But the icebergs invariably drift towards the Pacific, and are there melted by its warmer waters. Ask Kalumaha if I am not right. She knows these latitudes well, and will tell you that the thaw always proceeds from the north to the south. Kalumaha, when questioned, confirmed all that the lieutenant had said so that it appeared probable that the island would be drifted to the south like a huge ice-floe, that is to say, to the narrowest part of Bering Strait, which is much more frequented in the summer by the fishermen of New Archangel, who are the most experienced mariners of those waters. Making allowance for all delays, they might then hope to set foot on the continent before May, and although the cold had not been very intense, there was every reason to believe that the foundations of Victoria Island had been thickened and strengthened by a fresh accumulation of ice at the base, and that it would hold together for several months to come. There was nothing for the colonists to do but to wait patiently, still to wait. The convalescence of little Michael continued to progress favorably. On the 20th of February he went out for the first time, forty days after he was taken ill. By this we mean that he went from his bedroom into the large room, where he was petted and made much of. His mother, acting by Madge's advice, put off weaning him for some little time, and he soon got back his strength. The soldiers had made many little toys for him during his illness, and he was now as happy as any child in the wide world. The last week of February was very wet, rain and snow falling alternately. A strong wind blew from the northwest, and the temperature was low enough for large quantities of snow to fall. The gale, however, increased in violence, and on the side of Cape Bathurst 
and the chain of icebergs, the noise of the tempest, was deafening. The huge ice-masses were flung against each other, and fell with a roar like that of thunder. The ice on the north was compressed and piled up on the shores of the island. There really seemed to be a danger that the cape itself, which was but a kind of iceberg, capped with earth and sand, would be flung down. Some large pieces of ice, in spite of their weight, were driven to the very foot of the palisaded in Kent, but fortunately for the factory the cape retained its position. Had it given way, all the buildings must inevitably have been crushed beneath it. It will be easily understood that the position of Victoria Island at the opening of a narrow strait, about which the ice accumulated in large quantities, was extremely perilous, for it might at any time be swept by a horizontal avalanche, or crushed beneath the huge blocks of ice driven inland from the offing, and so become engulfed before the thaw. This was a new danger to be added to all the others already threatening the little band. Mrs. Barnett, seeing the awful power of the pressure in the offing, and the violence with which the moving masses of ice crushed upon each other, realized the full magnitude of the peril they would all be in when the thaw commenced. She often mentioned her fears to the lieutenant, and he shook his head like a man who had no reply to make. Early in March the squall ceased, and the full extent of the transformation of the ice-field was revealed. It seemed as if, by a kind of glissade, the chain of icebergs had drawn nearer to the island. In some parts it was not two miles distant, and it advanced like a glacier on the move, with the difference that the latter has a descending and the ice-wall a horizontal motion. Between the lofty chain of ice-mountains the ice-field was fearfully distorted, strewn with hummocks, broken obelisks, shattered blocks, overturned pyramids. It resembled a tempest-tossed sea or a ruined town, in which not a building or a monument had remained standing. And above it all the mighty icebergs reared their snowy crests, standing out against the sky with their pointed peaks, their rugged cones, and solid buttresses forming a fitting frame for the weird fantastic landscape at their feet. At this date the little vessel was quite finished. This boat was rather heavy in shape, as might be expected, but she did credit to MacNab, and shaped as she was, like a barge at the bows, she ought the better to withstand the shocks of the floating ice. She might have been taken for one of those Dutch boats which venture upon the northern waters. Her rig, which was completed, consisted, like that of a cutter, of a mainsail and a jib carried on a single mast. The tent canvas of the factory had been made use of for sailcloth. This boat would carry the whole colony, and if, as the lieutenant hoped, the island were drifted to Bering Strait, the vessel would easily make her way to land, even from the widest part of the passage. There was then nothing to be done but wait for the thaw." Hobson now decided to make a long excursion to the south to ascertain the state of the ice-field, to see whether there were any signs of it breaking up, to examine the chain of icebergs by which it was hemmed in, to make sure, in short, whether it would be really useless to attempt to cross to the American continent. Many incidents might occur, many fresh dangers might arise before the thaw, and it would therefore be but prudent to make a reconnaissance on the ice-field.
The expedition was organized, and the start fixed for March 7th. Hobson, Mrs. Barnett, Kalumaha, Marbra, and Sabine were to go, and if the route should be practicable, they would try and find a passage across the chain of icebergs. In any case, however, they were not to be absent for more than forty-eight hours. A good stock of provisions was prepared, and, well provided for every contingency, the little party left Fort Hope on the morning of the 7th March, and turned towards Cape Michael. The thermometer then marked 32 degrees Fahrenheit. The atmosphere was misty, but the weather was perfectly calm. The sun was now above the horizon for seven or eight hours a day, and its oblique rays afforded plenty of light. At nine o'clock, after a short halt, the party descended the slope of Cape Michael, and made their way across the ice-fields in a south-easterly direction. On this side the ice-wall rose not three miles from the Cape. The march was, of course, very slow. Every minute a crevice had to be turned, or a hummock too high to be climbed. It was evident that a sledge could not have got over the rough, distorted surface, which consisted of an accumulation of blocks of ice of every shape and size, some of which really seemed to retain their equilibrium by a miracle. Others had been but recently overturned, as could be seen from the clearly cut fractures and sharp corners. Not a sign was to be seen of any living creature. No footprints told of the passage of man or beast, and the very birds had deserted these awful solitudes. Mrs. Barnett was astonished at the scene before her, and asked the lieutenant how they could possibly have crossed the ice-fields if they had started in December, and he replied by reminding her that it was then in a very different condition. The enormous pressure of the advancing icebergs had not then commenced. The surface of the sea was comparatively even, and the only danger was from its insufficient solidification. The irregularities which now barred their passage did not exist early in the winter. They managed, however, to advance towards the mighty ice-wall, Kalumaha generally leading the way. Like a chamois on the alpine rocks, the girl firmly treaded the ice-masses with a swiftness of foot and an absence of hesitation which was really marvellous. She knew by instinct the best way through the labyrinths of icebergs, and was an unerring guide to her companions. About noon the base of the ice-wall was reached, but it had taken three hours to get over three miles. The icy barrier presented a truly imposing appearance, rising as it did more than four hundred feet above the ice-field. The various strata of which it was formed were clearly defined, and the glistening surface was tinged with many a delicately shaded hue. Jasper, like ribbons of green, and blue alternated with streaks and dashes of all the colours of the rainbow, strewn with enamelled arabesques, sparkling crystals, and delicate ice-flowers. No cliff, however strangely distorted, could give any idea of this marvellous, half-opaque, half-transparent ice-wall, and no description could do justice to the wonderful effects of Chiaro Oscuro produced upon it. It would not do, however, to approach too near to these beetling cliffs, the solidity of which was very doubtful. 
Internal fractures and rents were already commencing. The work of destruction and decomposition was proceeding rapidly, aided by the imprisoned air bubbles, and the fragility of the huge structure built up by the cold was manifest to every eye. It could not survive the Arctic winter. It was doomed to melt beneath the sunbeams, and it contained material enough to feed large rivers. Lieutenant Hobson had warned his companions of the danger of the avalanches which constantly fall from the summits of the icebergs, and they did not therefore go far along their base. That this prudence was necessary was proved by the falling of a huge block at two o'clock at the entrance to a kind of valley which they were about to cross. It must have weighed more than a hundred tons, and it was dashed upon the ice field with a fearful crash. Bursting like a bombshell. Fortunately, no one was hurt by the splinters. From two to five o'clock, the explorers followed a narrow winding path leading down amongst the icebergs. They were anxious to know if it led right through them, but could not at once ascertain. In this valley, as it might be called, they were able to examine the internal structure of the icy barrier. The blocks of which it was built up. were here arranged with greater symmetry than outside. In some places, trunks of trees were seen embedded in the ice, all, however, of tropical, not polar species, which had evidently been brought to Arctic regions by the Gulf Stream, and would be taken back to the ocean when the thaw should have converted into water the ice which now held them in its chill embrace. At five o'clock, it became too dark to go any further. The travellers had not gone more than about two miles in the valley, but it was so sinuous that it was impossible to estimate exactly the distance traversed. The signal to halt was given by the lieutenant, and Marbre and Sabine quickly dug out a grotto in the ice with their chisels, into which the whole party crept, and after a good supper, all were soon asleep. Every one was up at eight o'clock the next morning. And Hobson decided to follow the valley for another mile, in the hope of finding out whether it went right through the ice wall. The direction of the pass, judging from the position of the sun, had now changed from north to southeast, and as early as eleven o'clock, the party came out on the opposite side of the chain of icebergs. The passage was therefore proved to run completely through the barrier. The aspect of the ice field on the eastern side was exactly similar to that on the west. The same confusion of ice masses, the same accumulation of hummocks and icebergs, as far as the eye could reach, with occasional alternations of smooth surfaces of small extent, intersected by numerous crevices, the edges of which were already melting fast. The same complete solitude, the same desertion. Not a bird, not an animal to be seen. Mrs. Barnett climbed to the top of the hummock, and there remained for an hour, gazing upon the sad and desolate polar landscape before her. Her thoughts involuntarily flew back to the miserable attempt to escape that had been made five months before. Once more, she saw the men and women of the hapless caravan encamped in the darkness of these frozen solitudes. Or struggling against the insurmountable difficulties to reach the mainland. At last, the lieutenant broke in upon her reverie, and said, "Madam, 
It is more than twenty-four hours since we left the fort. We know the thickness of the ice wall, and as we promised not to be away longer than forty-eight hours, I think it is time to retrace our steps. Mrs. Barnett saw the justice of the lieutenant's remark. They had ascertained the barrier of ice was of moderate thickness, that it would melt away quickly enough to allow of the passage of McNabb's boat after the thaw, and it would therefore be well to hasten back lest a snowstorm or change in the weather of any kind should render return through the winding valley difficult. The party breakfasted and set out on the return journey about one o'clock p.m. The night was passed, as before, in an ice-cavern, and the route resumed at eight o'clock the next morning, March ninth. The travellers now turned their backs upon the sun, as they were making for the west, but the weather was fine, and the orb of day, already high in the heavens, flung some of its rays across the valley, and lit up the glittering ice-walls on either side. Mrs. Barnett and Kalumaha were a little behind the rest of the party, chatting together, and looking about them as they wound through the narrow passages pointed out by Marbra and Sabine. They expected to get out of the valley quickly, and be back at the fort before sunset, as they had only two or three miles of the island to cross after leaving the ice. This would be a few hours after the time fixed, but not long enough to cause any serious anxiety to their friends at home. They made their calculation without allowing for an incident which no human perspicacity could possibly have foreseen. It was about ten o'clock when Marbra and Sabine, who were some twenty paces in advance of the rest, suddenly stopped and appeared to be debating some point. When the others came up, Sabine was holding out his compass to Marbra, who was staring at it with an expression of the utmost astonishment. "'What an extraordinary thing!' he exclaimed, and added, turning to the lieutenant, "'Will you tell me, sir, the position of the island, with regard to the ice-wall? Is it on the east or west?' "'On the west,' replied Hobson, not a little surprised at the question. "'You know that well enough, Marbra.' "'I know it well enough. I know it well enough,' repeated Marbra, shaking his head. "'And if it is on the west, we are going wrong, away from the island.' "'What? Away from the island?' exclaimed the lieutenant, struck with the hunter's air of conviction. "'We are indeed, sir,' said Marbra. "'Look at the compass. My name is not Marbra, if it does not show that we are walking towards the east, not the west.' "'Impossible!' exclaimed Mrs. Barnett. "'Look, madam,' said Sabine. It was true. The needle pointed in exactly the opposite direction to that expected. Hobson looked thoughtful and said nothing. "'We must have made a mistake when we left the ice-cavern this morning,' observed Sabine. "'We ought to have turned to the left instead of to the right.' "'No, no,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'I am sure we did not make a mistake.' "'But,' said Marbra. "'But,' interrupted Mrs. Barnett, "'look at the sun. Does it no longer rise in the east? Now, as we turned our backs on it this morning, and it is still behind us, we must be walking towards the west.' so that when we get out of the valley, on the western side of the chain of icebergs, we must come to the island we left there. Marbra, struck dumb by this irrefutable argument, crossed his arms and said no more. Then if so, said Sabine, the sun and the compass are in complete contradiction of each other. 
"'At this moment they are,' said Hobson, "'and the reason is simple enough. "'In these high northern latitudes, "'and in latitudes in the neighbourhood of the magnetic pole, "'the compasses are sometimes disturbed, "'and the deviation of their needle "'is so great as to entirely mislead travellers. "'All right, then,' said Marbre. "'We have only to go on keeping our backs to the sun.' "'Certainly,' replied Lieutenant Hobson. "'There can be no hesitation which to choose.' the sun, or our compass. Nothing disturbs the sun. The march was resumed. The sun was still behind them, and there was really no objection to be made to Hobson's theory, founded as it was upon the position then occupied by the radiant orb of day. The little troop marched on, but they did not get out of the valley as soon as they expected. Hobson had counted on leaving the ice wall before noon, and it was past two when they reached the opening of the narrow pass. Strange as was this delay, it had not made any one uneasy, and the astonishment of all can readily be imagined when, on stepping on to the ice-field, at the base of the chain of icebergs, no sign was to be seen of Victoria Island, which ought to have been opposite to them. Yes, the island which on this side had been such a conspicuous object, owing to the height of Cape Michael, crowned with trees, had disappeared. In its place stretched a vast ice-field, lit up by the sunbeams. All looked around them, and then at each other in amazement. "'The island ought to be there,' cried Sabine. "'But it is not there,' said Marbre. "'Oh, sir, lieutenant, where is it? What has become of it?' But Hobson had not a word to say in reply, and Mrs. Barnett was equally dumbfounded. Kalumaha now approached Lieutenant Hobson, and touching his arm, she said, "'We went wrong in the valley. We went up it instead of down it. We shall only get back to where we were yesterday, by crossing the chain of icebergs. Come, come!' Hobson and the others mechanically followed Kalumaha, and trusting in the young native's sagacity, retraced their steps. Appearances were, however, certainly against her for they were now walking towards the sun in an easterly direction. Kalumaha did not explain her motives, but muttered as she went along, "'Let us make haste!' All were quite exhausted, and could scarcely get along, when they found themselves on the other side of the ice-wall, after a walk of three hours. The night had now fallen, and it was too dark to see if the island was there. But they were not long left in doubt. At about a hundred paces off, Burning torches were moving about, whilst reports of guns and shouts were heard. The explorers replied, and were soon joined by Sergeant Long and others, amongst them Thomas Black, whose anxiety as to the fate of his friends had at last roused him from his torpor. The poor fellows left on the island had been in a terrible state of uneasiness, thinking that Hobson and his party had lost their way. They were right, but what was it that had made them think so? Twenty-four hours before, the immense ice-field and the island had turned half round, and in consequence of this displacement they were no longer on the west, but on the east side of the ice-wall. End of chapter 15